We'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. As I posted in our weekly announcement last week, uh, it is amazing how the Lord just orchestrates everything to uh, the point that we come here to this passage on Christ promising to build his church, right? And uh, we're going through this passage on our first Sunday here uh, in this new location. Obviously, as Arthur already mentioned, right, the church is not a building. The church, or God's people, is made up of stones, of living stones that God continues to build and put together. And that's why we're excited about what's in front of us here. You know, recently I read an article about the current spiritual climate in Europe um, and how Christianity was just rapidly de- declining. And in so many parts, it's completely non-existent, almost, or, or at least it seems so. Um, churches are closing and, and are being converted. Christian churches are being converted into mosques, into museums, bars, and, and libraries. They're becoming archives. In most European countries, less than 5% of the population attends any church. In England, more than 70% have no intention of stepping into a church. And in Berlin, 95% of the churches church plants fail. 95% of the church plants fail. And so they raise this question in the article. They ask, what hope does the church have in such an environment? You look around at the landscape of the church and, and you almost are hopeless. Young pastors and old pastors, they get excited about planting a church and they, they plant it. It lasts for two years. No one comes. And so they just close it up and We'll shop and move on. Now, why does this matter? You know, this spiritual climate is a reminder of what's going on here in our state. We don't need to look to Europe. We can only just look in our backyards, in our cities, our counties, and our state, right? Especially over the past five years or so. You, you probably noticed that many are leaving the state of California. I read a report again this week uh, about U-Haul and how they are desperately seeking for drivers to bring back trucks that have left California. We need more trucks because people continue to flee this state. Why? Because of politics and because of high taxes. Now, many Christians, right, they jump on this bandwagon and they're leaving the state as well because they see no hope. They see no future for themselves. They don't see any future for their kids. What to speak of their grandkids. And with the passing of so many anti-Christian laws, many are just wondering, what hope does the church have in such environment as ours today? Well, beloved, the answer to this question is found in the very verses that we're about to look at this morning. The church, Jesus says, has great hope, great hope because of her builder. The church has great hope because of her builder. Listen, if it was up to us, right? If it was up to us, I would move out. Everybody would move out. I would ask you to move out if it was up to us. But it is not up to us. It is up to Jesus And friends, we have this assurance here in the written word that what he starts, he always completes it and he always perfects it. His work will always triumph because of who Jesus is. And that is why we have this great hope to continue to build, 
to continue to believe and continue to proclaim, as we will see here in just a few minutes. Now, this passage here, verses 13 through 20 specifically, volumes have been written on these verses here. I mean, uh, questions such as, was Peter the first pope? Is, is, is taken right out of this, this text, right? What is the rock upon which Christ builds his church? What are these gates of hell? What are the keys to the kingdom? What is up with this binding and loosing? I mean, we obviously need to know all of these things and Lord willing, we will go through each one of them. But friends, because of these great details here, we oftentimes lose sight of what we need to be focused on. The spotlight, as Matthew has been presenting from chapter one, verse one, until now is always on Jesus Christ. The spotlight is on Christ. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the ultimate question. This is the eternal question that demands your answer. Do you believe that Jesus is your God and does your life show it? You can get lost in all of these details and I don't want us to do that this morning, but I do want us to walk away affirmed in our faith that Jesus is who he is and because he is who he is, we have great hope. The church has great hope and the church will always be triumphant. I want us to read beginning with verse 13 through 20. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven, I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. As we look at this entire text, I want us to focus on this one main theme. And it goes like this. Since Jesus is God and the only door into the kingdom, the church must profess him and proclaim him to others. Since he is who he says he is, and he is the only door into the kingdom, then the church must profess and must proclaim him. Three things I want us to focus on here is profession, promise, and proclamation. Profession, promise, and proclamation. If you have your bulletins, you can flip to the other side. There's an outline for you to follow there. Um, profession. Let's look firstly, verses 13 through 17, a blessed profession. And it is this, it's exactly what Peter said. You are the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. There are a lot of movements in the gospel of Matthew. And here we come to another movement where Jesus takes his disciples 
and he takes him into district of Caesarea Philippi. It's a Gentile um, city, Gentile district. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So remember last time we looked at, they were in the south, and now they're moving their way up into the Gentile territory where people are worshiping pagan gods. It's a place of false worship. And Jesus, like he always does, have you noticed that he always asks questions when, especially when he wants to teach a lesson, he, he sort of asks a question, grabs an answer and then follows up or he builds on whatever was answered. Who he asks, who do people say that the son of man is? He is alone with his disciples. There are no crowds. And possibly the reason why he went up North is to get away from the crowds so that he could just have undivided focus and attention with the 12. And so he poses this question to them, who is, or who do people say that the son of man is? And notice here that Jesus is not asking to get information. Jesus knows, Jesus hears, Jesus understands. He is not ignorant of the public perception of him. What he is doing is he is asking in order to teach Notice how pointed this question is. This is the most important question you can answer. And it all centers on Jesus Christ. He says, who do people say that the son of man is? It's an Old Testament designation going all the way back to Daniel chapter seven. And oftentimes also in the prophets, like in the case of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is oftentimes called the son of man when he's addressed, when God addresses him, son of man, son of man. And so Jesus is saying, who, who, who do people say that the son of man is sort of like pointing to himself? And, and, and he wants just, it's sort of a public survey, right? Popular response. What are the popular response? And he's asking his disciples this. And so they answer in verse 14, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, then Jeremiah, or maybe just, you know, one of the prophets. The, the, notice, these are all good responses. They're all godly men. Like if, if, if someone was going to label you like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, you would walk, a, you would walk away home, right? Very proud. Be like, man, that's, that's a compliment. That's a compliment. No one is saying here, notice disciples are, you know, they're not saying like, oh yeah, people think that you're just this madman you know, walking around claiming to be Jesus. No, they're only focusing on positive responses. Why John the Baptist? Well, we read in chapter 14, we studied, right? Herod was afraid that John the Baptist came back to life. And so he was saying, this is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist. And so there may have been a group that assembled with this idea that, hey, we have a John the Baptist running around here after he was beheaded. Elijah Right? Some thought Jesus was the forerunner to the Messiah because he was promised to be, Elijah was promised to come in Malachi chapter 4, 5. He was John the Baptist, not Jesus, but nevertheless, some people mistaken him to be Elijah or, or the prophet because prophet uh, Jeremiah, he was preaching repentance and, and judgment, right? And so this is what Jesus was walking around and doing. Or maybe there was a group of people who just said, we, we really can't label him. He is just, you know, different. He's kind of like the other guys, like the other prophets. Good teacher, right? And preacher. 
And it's interesting that although there were individuals before who had addressed Jesus by a messianic title before, like son of David, twice already, someone came up to Jesus and they claimed son of David, right? That's a messianic title. Generally speaking, everyone still had some kind of misgiving about Jesus. No group had openly confessed Jesus as Christ. And so when we look at verse 14, we ask, what's wrong with all of these responses? They're good responses, but what's wrong with them? Listen, they are good, but they're not good enough. They are good, but they're not God. That's the point. Good, but not God. All of these answers, they fall short. Jesus, friends, is unlike anyone who had ever walked this earth before or since him. This one is different. This one is unique. And so then after getting sort of a public survey, he turns to the disciples and he wants from public survey to personal opinion, personal confession, personal testimony. He turns to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? No longer who do you say that the son of man is? They're close. They've been with Jesus for some time. And Jesus almost like stands in front of them. What about you? Forget the public opinion. What about you personally? Each one of you, who do you say that the son of man is? And it's, the, the question is very emphatic. In fact, literally it says, but you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. Peter always answers. Peter's always first. He was sort of a, a spokesman for the group. Uh, it, it, I already mentioned this when we were looking at the list of the disciples. Every list that's mentioned, Peter is always mentioned first. It's always first. He is the leader among the 12. He will be the first to preach gospel message after the spirit comes down in the book of Acts in, in Acts chapter two. And look what Peter says. Peter Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Listen, Peter didn't always get things right, but he got this one right. He got this one right. You are the Christ. We already studied this, right? In previous instances, you are the Christ. This is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Messiah, which means the anointed one. You are the one, the one about whom every other prophet spoke about. You are different. You are a step above. You are unique. You are the Christ. You did not come to speak about the Christ, but you are in fact the one. And not only are you the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. And since in the Old Testament, the Davidic king was to be called God's son, according to like Psalm 2.2 or, or 2 Samuel 7, Peter is possibly referring to this. Listen, Peter is not saying, you know, there's a God, God the father, and you are the son that's like a lesser God. No, he is saying you are Yahweh. You are the son of the living God. You are God. In fact, this verse 16, it has four definite articles and it reads like this. You are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. You're it. There's no one else. You are the one, the living one. 
And this emphasis on God, this God being living as opposed to all the other gods. In fact, they're in the Gentile territory. And, and this is perhaps what Peter is saying. Look at, look at the temples. Look at, look at the altars. Everyone is worshiping dead gods. But you, you are the living God. You are different. Our God is the living God, the one who made all things and who gives life to all. And this is the most exalted profession Peter could have altered, uttered at that point. You are the Christ. And Jesus follows up in verse 17 and he says, blessed you are. This is another beatitude. You are blessed. You are Happy and approved you are. I approve you, is what he's saying. This is an astonishing proclamation by Jesus, friends. Especially because just moments before, man, we see how ignorant the disciples are. He just rebuked them for being of little faith in verse 8. Five verses before. You of little faith. I don't know in terms of real time, the difference between these verses and, and, and what happened before, perhaps, you know, a month or, or a week. But Matthew puts it together so that we can see this contrast. The contrast is key because right there, Jesus says, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? How do you not understand? He rebuked the Pharisees. You do not discern the signs. You cannot perceive. And here is Peter. And he's saying, you are God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it right. You got it right. For so I am. For so I am. He nails it. And so here's the question that we must answer. How does anyone... Being so dumb, blind, unable to understand, how does anyone come to faith in Christ and understand that Jesus is God? How? We find answer in verse 17. You are blessed, Peter, but not because of you, nor anything in you, nor anyone like you. That's essentially what he is saying. You are blessed, Simon Barjona, son of John. You call me the son of God? Well, you, son of John, are blessed. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Why are you blessed? Why are you approved? Why do I like that answer? Because you got it right. And the only reason why you got it right is because the Father reveals. The Father must reveal the Son. How does anyone understand unless the Father reveals? No one can. Remember what the, what the earlier verses indicate. No one can discern, verse 3. No one can discern. No one understands. God must reveal. Friends, so many people today say something like this. Well, you know, I don't like that kind of view of God. This, this God that is just so much in charge of everything. Right? And, and, and man doesn't have a say. I want to I have a say in what I do. I want to have a say in, in who I believe. And I, uh, I want more of me. I, I like when I do things for God and God respond. Like if I let Jesus in, then Jesus is going to forgive and Jesus is going to bless. But let me be the initiator. Let me do this. Let me confess. Let me believe. And we, we hear various versions of this. Well, friend, 
If you are here this morning and you are sitting here and you're thinking this way, let me just, I want to remind you as, as clearly as, as we know from Scripture that our natural condition, the, the condition that we're born in, it is so bad. We don't even understand. The fall affected all of us. Every single one. We, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We are, according to Romans 1, we are actively suppressing the knowledge of God. We don't want anything to do with God naturally. That's us. That's sinners. And on top of all of that, if you read 2 Corinthians, you, you, you find out that there's an, the enemy of our souls who is actively blinding us. So not only are we actively suppressing the truth about God, but there is an enemy who is running around and he's constantly putting blinds, blindfolds on our eyes so that we do not see Christ, so that we don't understand the gospel. That's what the enemy does. How can you or I ever come to a point where we can say, aha, I got it. I understand who Jesus is. Beloved, we cannot it takes the sovereign work of God to give us life and to give us understanding. And friends, here's what I want us to focus on this morning. The great news is that he works. God works and God reveals. He allows us to figure it out just like he allowed Peter to figure it out. It's not like God, you know, has the ability, but he withholds. No, he, he works in order to make much of his son. That's why he came to die for us. God reaches down to underserving sinners and he graciously enlivens us and, and removes the blindfolds off of our eyes so that we can see, so that we can understand. It is not flesh and blood. It is not your ability. You didn't arrive at this by yourself. Friends, if we could choose, we would always choose sin. And it's been proven over and over and over and over again. You and I, if given the choice, will always choose sin. We love darkness because we're born in it. And it is a great mercy and compassion of God to reveal the truth about Jesus Christ and our need for Christ. It is him and him alone. It is the Father. Jesus already said this in Matthew 11. 25 and following, I thank you, Father, that you have hid this from some and you have revealed it to others. It's his prerogative. It's his initiative. Paul later on would say a similar thing in Galatians chapter 1. He says, but when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his gospel was pleased to reveal his son. He does that. And what do we do? And we fall flat on our face and we say, what do you want me to do, Lord? We take his cue and his command and we follow along because now all of a sudden we can see who he is. Church, aren't you glad that the father reached down to us and revealed his son? Listen, he didn't need to. He didn't need to. He could have just said in his justice, you fell in Adam and you're done. I have no other plan for you. He could have. I have no plan B. But he didn't. 
Aren't you glad that's not the case? And this is why we can sing and proclaim gospel-saturated songs. We read scripture. We preach the gospel truth that even though we are wretched sinner, Jesus is a mighty Savior. And that's why we're here this morning to celebrate this very truth. No other way to profess Christ but by having the truth of Christ revealed to you by God himself. And friends, this is why our number one goal is to preach the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, much like Paul preached in Colossians chapter 128. Him we proclaim and announce to every man that they can be complete in Christ alone. In Christ alone. And friends, when we preach Christ, the Spirit makes much of Jesus by by convicting you of sin and by drawing you to Jesus and by allowing you to see that he alone is your savior. That's why the spirit came. Jesus says, when I send the spirit, I will send him so that he can glorify me. The spirit always glorifies Jesus Christ. We are not saved by our futile efforts. We are saved by the sovereign grace of God that reaches down to us. And so the question that that Jesus asked his disciples, I want to turn to you this morning and to ask, what do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your God? Is he your Savior? Friends, there is no other. There's only one. There's only one. Every element here of this profession is absolutely necessary. Unless Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, and unless he is also the sinless son of God, right? The second person of the triune God who condescended to become the sacrifice on our behalf for our sins, we cannot be saved. And unless we personally profess with Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and place our trust in him for our salvation, we cannot be saved. So you're here this morning and you hear this proclamation, you hear this profession. Answer for yourself, is Jesus my Lord? Is Jesus my God? Verse 18, this blessed profession leads to sure promise. Peter's confession of Christ leads Jesus now to give him greater revelation about what's what's to take place. Soon. I want us to look now at our second point, a sure promise, a sure promise. Jesus will build his church. So having confessed Jesus Christ, Peter now gets the second response in verse 18. The, and, and verse 18 could take up the entire sermon, honestly. Um, I suspect that, that some of you, if not many of you here, you are aware of this controversy that surrounds verse 18 specifically, right? What is the rock upon Jesus built his church? But before we get to that specific question, I, I just want to make a few observations. Friends, this is the first time the church is mentioned in the gospel and therefore in the New Testament, since this is the first writing of the New Testament. The church, friends, did not exist before Christ, uh, right? Before Christ came because God was primarily working through the nation of Israel in order to bring about Christ who will then birth church. So there was no mention, there was no reference, there is no church. This is a new, completely new revelation. 
And it is doubtful that Peter here and, and the rest of the disciples, they really understood what Jesus said here, specifically in this passage. It's probably after the resurrection that they're reflecting on that and they're like, light bulbs, all kinds of light bulbs were going off after resurrection, after the ascension, like, okay, it all makes sense now because we see Peter's response in just a few short verses where then he gets rebuked and Jesus tells him, Peter, I know I just called you blessed, but get behind me, Satan, because you don't understand my plans. I mean, on the dime, right? From the greatest confession to being called the devil. They don't understand. And yet Jesus posits this truth for them and for us. Christ will build his church. So having affirmed this blessed profession, Jesus now continues and he says, I also tell you, Peter. I also tell you, Peter. So Jesus' response here sort of parallels his uh, Peter's statement, right? Earlier, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Now Jesus says, you are Peter. You are Peter and upon this rock. But I say to you, you are Peter. See how those statements are parallel. And, and, and the saying here, it relies on the pun on, on the name of Peter. In Aramaic, name, Peter's name is Cephas. Cephas. And the Greek translation is, is Petros. This word Petros, right? In Aramaic, it means rock. Um, rock, like a small rock. Perhaps a pebble. There's a huge discussion on on specifically what it means, but it's a smaller version of a rock. And he then uses a a similar sounding word to describe what he was building his church on. So he says, you are Peter, you are a rock. In verse 18, look with me at the text. You are Peter, you are a rock. And upon this rock, but the second rock that he uses, it's it's a different word. The second word is not Petros, but Petra. And it's, a, it's an allusion to a bigger rock. It's almost like this immovable object. So you are Peter, small rock, and, and upon this big rock, I will build my church. So the question goes like, well, who is this second rock? What's he, what's he saying? And traditionally in church history, there, there were offered three different interpretations for what this rock is, okay? Number one, And we're not going to go in depth through all of them. I just want to give them to you so that you are aware. Peter is that rock. That's the first explanation. Peter is that rock. So so Jesus is saying, you are Peter, you are a rock. And upon this rock, sort of pointing to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, right? And, And there are other passages in scripture like Ephesians chapter 20, right? The apostles, they are the foundation of the church. And so this could be what Jesus is alluding to upon you as sort of the leader, right? Among the apostles, I, I will build my church, right? He is the representative apostle. And, and in fact, this view here is the primary view of the Roman Catholic church. They hold the teaching that Peter was appointed right here as the first Pope of the church. And then every other Pope who succeeded him has the same exact authority, right? And therefore, has the Pope of the church, whatever he binds and loosens, he has all the authority, basically. And 
it's hard, right? To, uh, so they, they kind of take this and they built their whole ecclesiology off of that. But there are also very sound men like D.A. Carson, William Hendrickson. They argue, and I think rightly so, that you can affirm here that Peter is the rock. And, and there are grammatical reasons for doing that. They, you can affirm that Peter is the rock without subscribing to this Roman Catholic theology about Peter being Pope. And there are good reasons to believe this, I think. The other confession is, you know, Peter's confession is the rock, or the other um, answer, the other argument is Peter's confession is the rock. That's a more popular view, right? Jesus says, you're Peter, and upon your confession, upon what you just said, you said that, that I am Christ. Upon this confession, I will build my church. Because friends, everybody who's in the church, they must make this confession, don't they? You must profess that Jesus is Lord. And so the rock is the profession of Jesus as God's son. And the third interpretation is that Christ is that rock. So Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, you are Peter, small rock, but upon this rock, sort of pointing to himself, but upon this rock, this big rock, I will build my church. Jesus builds the church upon himself. And so, how do you solve this problem? Because honestly, you read through various commentaries and explanations, and they're all legitimate. <laughs> you, you, you have to make the cut. Um, is Peter the rock, or is his confession the rock, or is Jesus the rock? And, you know, I, I think perhaps, maybe, um, I kind of go back and forth between some of these views myself, and I got to confess to you, but... Uh, Maybe if we ask Peter, right, if we ask Peter what he understood from that interaction, perhaps it, it will make more sense. How did Peter understand what Jesus was saying? He was, maybe didn't understand it right there and then, right, what everything that Jesus was saying. But he did write two more epistles, right? First Peter, second Peter. And much of what he wrote was to the church, about the church, and about Jesus Christ specifically. And so turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. I just want to read real quick uh, four or five verses. Uh, verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2. I think this will help us perhaps nail down our, uh, a theory here, an understanding of how we should take what Jesus told him. And coming to him, verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and coming to him, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Peter here says that this rock, this cornerstone, this boulder is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the spiritual rock, right, in 1 Corinthians 10, that follow Israel in the days of Moses. Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians 3 that no man can lay a foundation 
other than one which is already laid, which is Christ Jesus. And perhaps even going back closer to our context, if we go back to Matthew, and if you could just go back with me to the Sermon on the Mount at the very end, right? In chapter 7, verses 24 and 27, Jesus alludes to something of a rock, right? We sing this song, the wise man built his house on the rock right? The foolish man built his house on the sand that's taken right out of Matthew chapter 7. And perhaps what Jesus is saying is that because you have no righteousness and you don't want the righteousness that the Pharisees are offering you, because to get into the kingdom, you need a righteousness that surpasses their righteousness. I have something to offer you. You need me. So therefore come and build on me. And if you build your faith on anything other than me, then you will be like that foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And oh, how great was its fall. Friends, go back to Matthew 16. Jesus says, I will build my church. The church, Jesus is the builder of the church. And he says that I will. So this promise is yet future in our text. But Jesus has been building the church for over 2,000 years now. The church, as most people know, it is the called out body of believers, right? And Jesus says, it is not your pastor's church. It is not your city's church. It is not even your church. It is my church. I own you. The Lord builds the church with the chosen, the called, the redeemed by his blood. And as we heard at the communion, he builds his church out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every nation, out of every people. Jesus gathers everybody into his church. Notice here something that Jesus does not promise to build families or to build enterprises or to build businesses or to build governments. All of these things will fail in due time. But the church of Jesus Christ has eternal security since Jesus is its builder. He will never fail to build his church. And that's why since he is the builder, he says the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of hell or, or your ESV uh, or our NASB translation, right? Hades or hell in ESV. It, it's a poetic idiom for, uh, for death, for death. And what Jesus is saying that death itself will not be able to stop the mission, the progress and the victory of the church. What is your greatest enemy? Your greatest enemy is death. And Jesus looks at it and he says, even death will not be able to thwart the plan. Death will not stop me from raising, rising up to life. And death will not stop me from building my church by resurrecting people out of death. And building and adding. And as Peter says, as living stones, one by one by one, adding to the church. Passing through the hell's gate was a common way to refer to death among the, uh, among the Jews. And Jesus says that death itself will not be able to stop the church. It is never going to die. Nothing will overthrow the church because, friends, the church is Jesus' bride. I mean, can you believe how encouraging this would have been to the disciples right there? right there and then, but especially when Jesus dies and when he resurrects and 
and when he ascends to the Father and when he sends his spirit, I mean, they are so encouraged. They are proclaiming the truth of Christ because they cannot lose. They cannot lose. Friends, if you go into any match and you are promised victory, you know what kind of confidence you're going to have? You, if you go into a basketball match being promised victory, you'll be chucking up all kinds of threes and fours because you are promised victory. It doesn't matter. Everything will go in. And this is what Jesus is saying. I will build my church. And friends, history has proven these words to be true. Persecution can't stop the church. It only grows the church. Governments can't stop stop the church. Even COVID can't stop the church. The church is closed, but it continues to flourish. Beloved, the church is Jesus's first and foremost love. Understand this, that the church is Jesus' first and foremost love. I mean, it may not be impossible to overstate the centrality of the church in the New Testament. It is all about church because it is all about Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus died for the church. He purchased it with his blood. Jesus is the head of the church, as we read in Colossians 1. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Christ. We are told that Christ will return for his church. Christ gives his followers to serve in the church. Christ calls men to lead and preach his church. Christ is building his church. In Revelations, we we see in Revelation, we see Jesus. He gives a, uh, John gives us a picture of Jesus walking among the churches, holding right his, their pastors in his hand. Jesus cares and loves the church. Have you ever heard someone say, I love Jesus, I just can't deal with the church? I love Jesus, but I'm having a hard time hanging out with sinners. Friends, this is impossible. If you hate the church, you cannot claim to love Jesus Christ. Yes, the church is full of sinners, but they're saints in Christ. And Jesus loves every single one of you here. Every single one of you here, they are, you are cherished by Christ. He loves you. And therefore, that is the motivation for us to love one another. We've been united together in Christ. If you love Jesus, you're going to be part of his church. And so, why do you love the church? It's because you love Jesus. Why do you serve in the church? Because you love Jesus. That's it. That's your greatest motivation. Beloved, Jesus is building his church. He is building us upon him. Every other religion in the world, it proclaims a message of acceptance and hope that is based on human effort and human works. But Christianity is radically different. Eternal acceptance into a relationship with God and inclusion into his people are both based not on your work, but on his work alone. That is why Martin Luther, when he wrote this great hymn, he says this, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Why is he so confident? Why is Martin Luther so confident? It was because he read Matthew 16. That's why he's so confident. He will win the battle. The gates of Hades will not overcome the church. Jesus loves the church and will do everything 
in order to purify it, sanctify it, and bring it to glory. Blessed profession leads to sure promise. Consider finally, quickly, authoritative proclamation. What time is it? They didn't hang up the clock in the back? Praise the Lord. 11.30? Five? Four. Okay, that's better. Um, Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Third, an authoritative proclamation. Jesus is the only door into the kingdom. just want to quickly run through this. Jesus alone is our God and Savior, as we said. Therefore, we must profess and we must proclaim him. This is another verse that, that has so many different controversies, right? Gives rise to, to different controversies. And the metaphors here are switched from rocks to keys. I will give you the keys, right? So this whole conversation about rocks is sidelined. Now we're talking about keys. What do key, keys do? Keys, they open doors, right? They open what's closed and then they close what's open, right? With key, you have access. Like someone was asking this week, who has access to the building? What they're asking is who has the keys and who has the alarm code to disarm, right? So that you can enter into the building. That's what he's talking about here. So keys, when you have keys, you have authority. You, you, you have been granted permission to do something. And when Jesus tells Peter that he will give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven, this means that Peter has authority. Authority to do what? What authority is he promised? Again, notice that he says, I will give you the keys. You don't have the keys yet. I will give you the keys. Why? Because Peter doesn't know much yet. He doesn't understand. The gospel is not yet fully developed. Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't resurrected yet. He hasn't ascended. He didn't send his spirit. So, so this is sort of, inf- uh, this proclamation is in infancy. What is this authority? Notice Jesus says this. He speaks of permission, Right? Permission, I will give you the keys so that you will enter or so that you will open and close. And by addressing Peter here, later on we will see in Matthew 18, 18, that disciples have the same exact authority, right? Authority to do what? To announce the forgiveness of sins to people who repent and trust in Jesus Christ. They have the authority to announce the forgiveness of sins to people who acknowledge Jesus as their Lord. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your sins are forgiven and you can declare this with full authority. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, you can write this down and look later. Luke 11:52. Uh, in this passage, Jesus here, he te- talks to the teacher and he just denounces them, right? For having the key of knowledge. He says, you have the key of knowledge but you fail fail to enter in yourself into the kingdom and you prevent those who are following you to enter too. How? Because by their teaching, they don't allow the gospel to be proclaimed. They interpret the reality of scripture in a very twisted and perverted way. They don't point to Jesus as the only door into the kingdom. They point to themselves. They point to to this uh, crazy laws, right? You have to wash and you have to do this and that. But, and Jesus looks at this and says, you have the key, you have, you have the word, but you completely butcher it and everyone dies as a result of it. 
But to the disciples, he says, I give you the keys. Why? Because you're going to be proclaiming me. Binding and losing here this this language, it is not um, about this encounter with demonic forces. You know, this, this, this phrase is often used with, in discussions with like, I bind this spirit, you know, and I cast out that spirit and they pull this phrase out of it. That's not what he's talking about. It is about carrying on the ministry of reconciliation that the Lord has entrusted to us as his church. Again, I will remind you what Jesus said in Sermon on the Mount. And I think the, oftentimes, right, the context here really explains. And Jesus is building on what he said before. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in also towards the end of the sermon in verses 13 and uh, 14, he says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Jesus in Matthew says, I am the door, or in John, I am the door. And the disciples are given keys to that door. Authority to proclaim Jesus Christ for he alone is the way. He alone gets you into the kingdom. Friends, you want to be in the kingdom, you need to trust Jesus. And the disciples then took on this gospel message and propagated it everywhere and proclaimed Jesus Christ as only access into the kingdom. That's it. We do the same thing today. That's why in Acts, when Jesus, uh, you know, when the spirit comes down and Peter stands up and he preaches the sermon, people are convicted of their sin. They come, what must we do? What must we do? Peter had the key. He says, repent and believe. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's all you got to do. Faith, place your faith in Jesus Christ and your access into the kingdom will be secured. Christ gave the apostles and to all the disciples the privilege of proclaiming Jesus to the world. And by that proclamation, binding and loosing what was already bound and loosed in heaven. This was no mysterious power, right, reserved for the Pope or for the few. But by proclaiming the gospel, one would see faith or rejection in the hearer and understand how the kingdom of Christ was growing in the world that often refuses to enter. You have only one thing to do, church, and that is to proclaim what you profess. Proclaim what you profess. And finally, look in verse 20. He warns, kind of gives them a gag order. Don't say what you just told me. Don't tell it to anyone. We're no longer here, friends. Some of us, I think, sometimes acting like we're still in in Matthew 16, 20. We don't tell anybody that Jesus is Christ. We're moving beyond that, right? We're after acts. This doesn't apply to us. We go and we proclaim, go home and go and tell people about Jesus Christ. So finally, what do, we, what do you say, friend? What do you say about Jesus? Who is Christ? Who do you profess? Do you profess him as Lord in your only way? Do you love the church as Jesus loves the church? Obviously, none of us love the church as Jesus loves the church, but we got to grow in our love for the church as we grow in our love for Christ? Are you committed to the only institution on earth that Jesus is committed to? This is the only institution that will survive. And do you make much of Jesus by proclaiming him to others? I think you can think of people today, right now, 
one, two, maybe three people that you've been praying for, and maybe you, maybe you need to tell them. Maybe you need to reach out to them. Maybe you need to write to them, call, meet for coffee, whatever you need to do. What hope do we have here as a church, friends? We have great hope. We have great hope. Why? Because that hope is not placed in you. It is not placed in your pastors. It is only placed in the chief pastor, the great shepherd, as Peter would later call him, right? In 1 Peter chapter 5, we have a great shepherd of our souls. That's our hope, Jesus Christ. He is worthy of being proclaimed because he alone is our greatest need. Father, we do bow before you, and we thank you, and we ask that you would bless our hearts to affirm this, to confess it, to profess it, and to proclaim it, this truth. We are saved by grace through faith. And may we go, and may we compel others to believe this. May we love the church. May we love to serve. May we love to see one another, to be encouraged as we, Lord, see you work in each other's life, to be invested into one another because you're invested into us. We thank you for this assurance. Build us here in this place, but also as we leave this place and we go back to where you have us live and live most of our lives, we ask that you would be glorified and many people would come to know you. Amen.